And for the rest of us, we are continuing our spring study in the book of Song of Songs. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand. Some people would love to bring you a Bible. And if you're using one of the Bibles provided, we're going to be on page 669 today. Chapter 6 of Song of Songs, and we're going to be starting in verse 4. We, if you remember from last week, we ended in verse 3. Our words are powerful, aren't they? I mean, that's, that's a pretty basic truism. Words are powerful. I mean, just saying three words, I love you, pretty basic. It's not difficult to say. And yet that, those three words can mean all the difference in someone's life. I mean, I don't know a lot about the human condition, but the little I do know is that we long to hear people in our lives say that they're proud of us, to assure us that they love us, are pleased with us, that they appreciate us. We long to hear the reassuring words of love. We want to hear our moms and dads say that they're proud of us. We want to hear our spouses say they love us. We want to hear our bosses say that they appreciate our work ethic. We long for words of care, words of affirmation. We long for people to to say that they appreciate us. And the reason I think we do is that we all have that nagging feeling in the back of our minds. I mean, you could come in today and be the most secure person, and yet all of us have leveling degrees of insecurity. And if you do something that maybe you shouldn't have done, or if you just have an awkward experience with someone, you have that thought, that annoying thought in the back of your mind that wonders, do they like me? Is it me or is it them? Or maybe you have a a conflict with your spouse and you're just wondering, do they still love me? Do they still think I'm beautiful? Do they still want to work on our relationship, we, we, we just naturally have these thoughts because naturally living in a broken world produces leveling degrees of insecurity. And what we're going to learn today is that words can assure us in the midst of our insecurity in some powerful ways. Now, this spring we've been going through the, the Song of Songs, which is a book dedicated to love. And it's a book dedicated broadly to love, but in particularly, it's dedicated to the love between a man and a woman in the context of marriage. And this collection of love poems that all are kind of woven together thematically and character-driven, it's all about this man and this woman and their uh, idyllic, or we could even say their Edenic love. I mean, They love each other. They love each other in ways that make me really uncomfortable at times. Maybe you felt uncomfortable as well when you read some of these verses. But they love each other. And from chapter after chapter, we just see this this Edenic type love. And then we arrive in chapter 5. And we finally see a chink in their relational armor. And they get in a fight. They get in a quarrel. 
It really doesn't matter what the fight was about. He wants something, he doesn't get it, and they get into a in conflict, into a fight. And then she, at great personal cost to her, she realizes her selfishness and then begins to pursue him and brings him back, restores the relationship. And so we end uh, chapter 6, verses 1 to 3, with, from her vantage point, the relationship has been restored. They're together. But you also end uh, this section in verse 1 and 2 and verse 3 wondering, is this just from her vantage point? Because after this conflict happens, the man never speaks, and so you have no idea what he's thinking in the midst of all this. Because for relationships to work, it takes two people. So so when there's conflict, you can pursue them and say, I forgive you, or you can offer forgiveness, but if the other person rejects forgiveness or doesn't want forgiveness, well, reconciliation, we could put it this way, reconciliation is a duet sung by two people. Forgiveness can be a solo, but it takes two people to reconcile. As one author put it, Reconciliation is a double grace of God. And so we, we sort of end the section last week wondering, well, she has sought his forgiveness, but what about him? Has he forgiven her? Does he still love her? Does he still want to fight for their relationship? We, we see the grittiness of her love, but we end wondering, well, what about him? And what we finally realize, starting in verse 4, is that he, he's pursuing her as well. And what he's going to do is he is going to reassure her of his love and reconcile with her. So the big idea this morning is simply this. And you're going to see that we're going to break it up in two parts. And it is, whenever it comes up, but I'll read it. It is a word of reassurance can lead to moments of reconciliation. A word of reassurance can lead to moments of reconciliation. So the first part is about his words of reassurance, and then we move into a moment of reconciliation. So if you will, turn with me to chapter 6, starting in verse 4. We'll read to the end of the chapter. He speaks. You are beautiful as Terza. My love, lovely as Jerusalem, awesome as an army with banners. Turn away your eyes from me, for they overwhelm me. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of ewes that have come up from the washing. All of them bear twins. Not one among them has lost its young. Your cheeks are like halves of pomegranates behind your veil. There are 60 queens and 80 concubines and virgins without numbers. My dove, my perfect one is the only one, the only one of her mother, pure to her who bore her. The young women saw her and called her blessed. The queens and the concubines also praised her. Who is this who looks down like the dawn, beautiful as the moon, bright as the sun, awesome as an army with banners? Then she speaks. I went down to the nut orchard to look at the blossoms of the valley, to see whether the vines had budded, whether the pomegranates were in bloom. Before I was aware, my desire set among, among the chariots of my kinsmen, a prince. Return, return, O Shulamite, return, return, that we may look upon you. Why would you look upon the Shulamite 
as upon a dance between two armies. So chapter 5 ends, and we have this this sort of fight. That's the context of chapter 6, beginning in verse 4. We have this drama that she is, in one sense, put to bed, but then we open up and we're still wondering, has he, is he still mad? Is, does he still love her? Is he still brooding over this? Does, is he lording it over? Because this is really how relationships sometimes work, do they not? One party does something and then there's a retaliation and then a retaliation and you get this crazy cycle, a sort of, you know, tit for tat. So you reject me, I'll reject you. You rejected me emotionally, I'll reject you physically and it just goes around the crazy cycle over and over again and sometimes it feels like it is an endless loop of dysfunction. And instead of reconciliation, you have retaliation. And so we open up wondering, is he going to retaliate? Or is he going to reconcile? Uh, This past week, I was really kind of putting myself in her shoes, and I really do feel sorry for her. Like, I really feel for her because, because we learn in chapter one that she has a lot of insecurities about the relationship. And so she's feeling all the insecurities in light of this conflict. And she must be thinking, does he still think I'm beautiful? Does he still want me? And so she is, in one sense, stuck. Because though she can pursue him, if he does not want to pursue her, well, she's going to be in an endless loop of just a one-sided relationship. And it takes two parties to reconcile. And so she wants to move forward. Does he want to move forward? And what we see here is that he very much wants to move forward. So verse 4, he speaks, and once again, he calls her beautiful, as beautiful as Terza, which is initially the northern, the capital of the northern kingdom right after Solomon. And then says, you're as beautiful also as Jerusalem, you know, the, the city in the southern, uh, the capital in the southern kingdom. So it would be just in modern days, we would say something like, you're as beautiful as Paris or as regal as the Vatican, something like that, right? That's how the poetry works. He's just taking the most beautiful cities, the most beautiful and theologically rich cities in his time, and just applying it to her. And then starting in verse 5, he begins to describe her beauty. Her, her eyes overwhelm him. Her teeth are straight and white, you know, a dentist's dream. Her hair glistens, you know, better than a L'Oreal shampoo commercial. Her cheeks are beautiful. And then he just stops. And I'm so grateful in this chapter he just stops. You know, in other chapters he just kind of keeps going. But now he just stops. We have a reprieve from that. And then he just shifts all of a sudden and starts talking about queens and concubines and virgins. And you're like, what in the world is he doing? But then you just go to verse 9 you know exactly what he's doing. That's the verse 9 explains what he's doing in verse 8. There are a lot of beautiful women. And he's basically saying, if you take all the beautiful women in America and you had a Miss America pageant, she would dominate the competition. She would win. In his eyes, he would pick her every time. There is no competition. She is the most beautiful woman in the land. And then you get to verse 10, and he writes this just strikingly beautiful verse. And he compares her to the dawn and the moon and the sun. Just like Romeo describes Juliet. Remember those words? What light 
Though yonder window breaks, it is the east and Juliet is the sun. Arise, fair sun, and kill the envious moon who is already sick and pale with, with grief. So she is as striking as the dawn. She is more beautiful than the rising sun. She is like the moon. And you've seen like, you know, a, a full moon among, it's all black and then you've got stars and it's just gorgeous. She is a little bit like that. She's a star, a celebrity. She's out of his league. It's beautiful. It's this, 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 this verse and these words that he's just showering her with praise and admiration. But then note, notice this whole speech that he gives, this whole poem is bracketed with a phrase. The same phrase comes up twice in verse 4 and verse 10. The man says that, he, that she is as awesome as an army with banners. Now, I've never been to war. I've never been in a battle. But I can imagine, I've seen enough movies, I can imagine what it would feel like to be a troop and seeing an army approaching, like cresting over a hill and just seeing thousands and thousands of people with banners ready to attack, you know, ready to fight. I can just imagine what that would feel like. You'd be standing there and your knees would begin to shake your heart would be pumping faster and faster and faster. Like everything would just kind of like just slow down. Time would slow down, wouldn't it? And you'd have tunnel vision. You'd want to run, but you'd want to stay. You, you're terrified, but you're like, I've been trained for this. Like all those emotions would be coming. And he says that when he's with her, it's like that. It's, she's a little scary. He gets butterflies in his stomach. His hands sweat. She wields that sort of power and influence over her, but not in a bad way, in a way that he loves, in a way that he enjoys. It's really beautiful. But I don't think what he's doing here is just wooing her, right? This is not just like a man writing some poetry to woo his woman. Actually, something even more beautiful is going on here. What he's doing is he is responding to what happened in chapter 6, and he's using this poetry in order to reassure her that he loves her. So if, if you go to verses 5 and 7, we read where he's describing her eyes, hair, and teeth, and cheeks. And if you're like, I think I've heard of that before, you have, and you're paying attention. Because back in chapter 4, when he describes her, he uses that same language, the exact same poetry he uses in chapter 4. Now he's using in chapter 6. He's stealing chapter 4 poetry and applying it once again in chapter 6. Same idea. And I, this, you know, I'm sitting here, I'm reading this, and I'm like, why is he doing this? I'm like, come on, get some new material, man. Right? Like, he describes her hair like a flock of goats, and I'm like, jazz it up a little bit, right? Be like, your, your hair is not like a flock of goats. Your, your hair is like sheep, or your hair is as beautiful as a golden doodle. I mean, there's lots of things that this guy could do, right? He doesn't do it. I mean, is he just like poetically lazy? I don't think so at all. I don't think that's the point at all. He's actually communicating something extremely important and theologically impactful. So back in chapter 4, if you just think about it chronologically and thematically, back in chapter 4, there is no sin, there is no conflict, there's no even hint of any chink in their relationship. It's all Eden. It's all paradise. 
It's all, you know, Care Bears and rainbows and honeymoon. It's all that. And then you get to chapter 6, and all of a sudden there's conflict. And so what he's doing is, when he uses his poetry that he used to serenade her in chapter 4, and he uses it once again, the same language in chapter 6, he's basically saying theologically that I see you the same way I saw you before the conflict. He's reassuring her that though a lot has changed in the relationship, from his vantage point, nothing's changed at all. She is just as beautiful before their conflict, after their conflict that, that she was before the conflict. He's reassuring her that she is the apple of his eye. He loves her. And this conflict, this tension, this strain in their relationship doesn't change that. He loves her in the same way he loved her back in chapter 4. And so he uses this opportunity to use words to reassure her of that reality. Now, I've been around the pastoral block well enough to know that I've met with lots of men and women, and I hear the, the same story so many times, which is basically, I just wish my friend, or I just wish my dad, or I just wish my mother told me they loved me or told me that they were proud of me. I mean, I'm guessing you've heard those stories. Maybe you've experienced that where you just wish, looking back, that your parents or someone important to you, a mentor, a grandparent, just told you, I love you. I'm proud of you. And we know, you know, you don't, we know that people who long for it but don't experience it, we know that there can be some devastating consequences, that, that men and women can just throw themselves into relationships just hoping that they can fulfill or, or fill that void that they lacked in their relationships or, uh, you know, in their relationships as a kid. I mean, movies are dedicated to this sort of theme. And yet our, our author reminds us that we should obnoxiously use words to reassure people that we love them. That's what this man does. As one author put it, um, our calling as humans, as parents, as friends, as wives, as husbands, as brothers and sisters, is to, and I just love this language, is to use expressive words with obnoxious frequency to communicate our love. To express our words using obnoxious frequency, using different language, different words, different images, different metaphors to shower people with words of love. We're called like this man to use words and annoy one another in the good sense and shower them with reassuring words that we love them, that we're proud of them. Because all of us are insecure. And we all need, from time to time, men and women, husbands and wives, brothers and sisters, to come to us and reassure us that they love us and that they're proud of us and they're encouraged by us. Love is more than words. But love isn't less than words. All relationships need reassurance because conflict erodes assurance. So conflict, relationally speaking, puts thoughts into your mind like, oh, why don't they, do, do they love me? 
do they want to be friends with me? Do they want to walk with me? That's what conflict does. It erodes confidence and increases insecurity. And words, words can repair. Words of reassurance can be a, a mechanism or a ministry of reconciliation relationally. Because if you think about it, that's what we have in the gospel. The gospel is God's reassurance of his love for his bride. Our sin erodes our relationship with God. So sin, in one sense, disfigures us. Sin makes us ugly. Sin disfigures us. It distorts our beauty. And so, in so doing, we become insecure. And we wonder, does God like me? Does God love me? Does God want to redeem me? Does God forgive me? That's what sin does. It puts those thoughts into our mind. And I just love that even in the Old Testament, before Jesus even comes on the scene, there is a promise from the prophet Isaiah who promised this most amazing promise that God's people shall be called God's delight. For the Lord delights in you as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride. Isaiah is saying that, that as this man in the Song of Songs rejoices over her in that great kind of emotional longing and delight that he has experienced with her, so in a far greater way, in a far infinitely greater way, so shall your God rejoice over you. That's the promise, that God will look on you and delight in you. Our sin distorts our beauty. Sin disfigures our soul. It creates an internal angst within us, and yet then the gospel comes to us. Jesus comes, and what does he do? He comes, and he dies, He disfigures himself in order to beautify us. The loudest reassurance to humanity that God still loves us is Calvary. When Jesus died and displays and declares his love for his people. The gospel brings reassurance. The gospel is a word of reassurance in light of our sin. And so this song really does point us not only to how reassurance works within our relationship, but it also points us in a far greater way to God's reassurance of us in the gospel that even though we still sin, even though we are yet in a process of becoming more and more beautiful in Christ, whatever insecurity or whatever thought, whatever angst you have existentially about your standing before God, In Christ, you can be assured that he loves you. As this man loves this woman, so Christ loves his bride. The entire Bible, all 1,189 chapters, and I googled it so you know it's right. Each page, each verse is God speaking words of reassurance to his people that he yet loves us. This is the power of words. It's the blessing of the words of reassurance. But words of reassurance, they don't just, they're just not words. They actually do something. They actually reconcile. Look there in verse 11. So verse 11, she's still kind of insecure, isn't she? Right? She she speaks and finally, and she's wondering if he's still mad. He speaks, but she's not assured. She needs proof. 
Right? Have you ever texted a friend and said, like, hey, that was a bad, that was a stupid joke. I'm sorry. I don't know if maybe you were offended. I'm, I'm really sorry. And so you, you texted and asked for their forgiveness. And they're like, no problem. And then you see them for the first time. And you're a little like, is this going to be weird? Is this going to be awkward? Have they truly forgiven me? That's sort of what's going on here, I take it. He says these sorts of things, but she's like, I'm not sure. And she knows that in order for them to be really unified, in order for reconciliation to really happen, it's going to take two people. And so she goes on to check to see if the relationship has cooled or if the relationship, in one sense, is back to being restored. So she goes down to the valley, the garden there, verse 11, which once again represents the relationship. And she tries to find out if the vine has budded or the pomegranates were in bloom. That's just a poetic way of describing. She wants to know if their relationship is is unified. If it's a time for reconciliation. She's searching out to see if intimacy is rekindled or if the fire and zeal of the relationship has cooled. And just as beautiful as his words are, she doesn't believe it. Do you ever have those, those conversations with people? They, they say something encouraging to you, and then you just reject them. You're like, I don't believe them. I do this all the time. I'm the worst at this. A word of reassurance comes, and I'm like, ah, and I just reject it. Or I hear even the words of, of God in the gospel saying, this is who you are, and sometimes it's really hard to believe it. And so, as beautiful as these words are that this man showers on this woman, she's having a hard time wrapping her mind around it. She's having a hard time believing them. She's having a hard time thinking that those words are true. And I think this is the mark of maturity for the Christian. Because all of us, in our sin and in our weakness, sometimes have a hard time believing what God really thinks of us. And so what we need to do is take the words of the gospel, the words of God, We need to take the words of even our friends in the church who shower us sometimes with love and honor, and we need to, time and time again, believe those words. Those words, that message should be louder than the message or the words or the the thoughts of insecurities that just roam around our minds and souls. Well, she goes down to find out the status of the relationship, and I think it's wonderful that you have, he pursues her and now she pursues him. It's both and. Recently, someone pointed something out that is really, really interesting that once you see, you're never going to see it again, never not see it again. So in Matthew 5, um, Jesus says that if your brother has something against you, go to them. And then if you go to Matthew 18, it's just the reverse We read, Jesus says, if you have something against your brother, go to him. Isn't that interesting? So if someone has something against you or you have something against them, in both cases, you're meant to initiate and go. Whatever the conflict is, whoever caused the conflict, if you sin against them or they sin against you, in one sense, from Jesus' perspective, it does not matter. Your calling is actually to initiate, to pursue them. Jesus is the great prince of peace, is he not? And we are now called to be peacemakers and to pursue one another and to fight for reconciliation. 
as Jesus says in the Beatitudes, right? Blessed are the peacemakers. And so that's what we have here. We have this budding reconciliation that is flowering. And so she initiates, she goes down to find out. She initiates and pursues reconciliation. She searches him out in the midst of their conflict. And what does she find out? What does she find? We have no idea. It doesn't tell us. We don't know what happens, but we do know what she feels because poetry is about communicating truth through emotions, and all we know is what she feels. She's elated, isn't she? Verse 12. Some desire has awoken in her heart, and once again she calls him her prince. Her fears that maybe he had lost some respect for her or that the conflict had eroded their relationship or that maybe he doesn't find her beautiful any longer, all fall away. The flame of their love is once again bursting with life. What was paradise lost is now paradise found. Fairy tale ending. The song, notice, ends with the community speaking. It's kind of interesting, so let's just unpack this for a second. Right? The, 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 the woman speaks, and now the community speaks. And the community wants to gaze upon the beauty of this woman. They, they want to look at the beauty of their, this relationship, this restored relationship. And if you've ever had, or if you ever have watched stories of reconciliation, they are beautiful. Like, we love these stories, don't we? They are beautiful. We can't get enough of those stories when there's two people and they are finally restored. There's reconciliation. We love celebrating those stories. Or we're terrified that maybe reconciliation won't happen. Uh, Bruce Springsteen, uh, he wrote a song in the 1980s called My Father's House. You might know this song. It's uh, in his album called Nebraska. And he writes this song called My Father's House. And in this song, the narrator dreams one night of running through the forest. And he's trying to run to his father's house, hence the title. And as he's running through the forest and the trees and the brambles, he feels as if there's ghosts and demons that are trying to grab at his heels and trying to trip him up and, and, and not allow him to get to his father's house. It's really sur- surreal. But eventually he arrives. He finally pushes through the the final kind of branches and trees and he sees his father's house and he runs and he sees his father and he runs into his father's arms. And if that were just the entire song, you'd go, that's a great modern-day retelling of the prodigal son. It's a story about reconciliation. Here's the problem. The song doesn't end there. The narrator in in the song wakes up. This was all a dream. But the dream functioned to do something. He, he, he begins to realize all the, the ways in which he contributed to the conflict that he has with his father. And so he realizes, I need to make amends. And so he then goes and he pursues his father. He runs to his father's house. And when he arrives, a woman answers the door. And she talks to him through a chained door and says, I don't know where your father is. I have no idea. And the song ends with the tragic reality that Father and son will not be reconciled. I mean, it's, it's a heartbreaking song. In one sense, I applaud the honesty because that makes sense of many stories that we have living in this broken world. 
it, it, it kind of captures the desperation that we feel and the longing and the desire we want to reconcile with those whom we love. And yet sometimes it doesn't happen. But even in my father's house, in that song, which is a negative song about this theme, I think it, the reason why it's so powerful, the reasons why it's so traumatic, and the reason why I, I listened to it many, many times this week, and it just is so profound, is because all of us long to be reconciled. We want that so much. And when it just is out of reach, it's that much more tragic. And so what we have here in our song is actually not the tragic story of reconciliation desired but found wanting. We have what our hearts yearn for. And so the community, for the first time, they, they call her Shulamite. And you're like, why in the world? Where does that come from? Right? It never comes up in the, the Bible ever again. It's just this. But what we do know is that that word, that name, is the feminine, the female uh, version of Solomon. And Solomon's name means peace. So her identity, as it were, derives from Solomon, whose name means peace. So her name, I think, is meant to communicate symbolically and thematically what is going on in their relationship. They're at peace. They're unified. They're reconciled. They're living their relationship east of Eden, but it's as if their relationship is now back in the Garden of Eden. And then this section ends with the man speaking. The man tells the community that the time to gaze over them is over, right? He's like, sorry, we've been putting our relationship on Instagram. We're taking it all down. Stop. We're not going to, no more public displays of affection. We need to be alone. That's what he's saying here, right? The time is over. And then it's happily ever after. We've seen this theme over and over again. Longing reconciliation. Longing reconciliation. And that's how this section ends. With the curtains drawn and the man and the woman once again restored, reconciled, and their love rekindled. So what began with conflict ends with reconciliation. Springsteen wrote that song, My Father's House, because he knew that we all long for reconciliation. We all long to be restored. We all long to be able to make amends for our sins. We long to be able to put conflict to bed, as it were. We long to hear the voices of our fathers and mothers, our brothers and sisters, our friends say, I love you, I'm proud of you, let's move forward. We long for those words. We long for the words, well done. Well, this poem gives us an earthly taste of that reality. And some of us might have stories where we've experienced that. And yet, in a far greater way, this poem points us to a far greater application, a far greater reality that in Christ we can ultimately be reassured that we can find reconciliation in him and that he will say what our hearts have yearned for all our lives.
well done, our good and faithful servant. Lord, we, we, we are so grateful that your son, as he died, reassures us of his love, reassures us that he will return, and in so doing, make all things right. Whatever conflict we have, whatever strife that we are experiencing will come to an end, and we thank you for the promise of his return. Lord, we pray that you would persevere us to that day. We we pray, Lord, that you would bring to mind those relationships in order that, that, that we ought to initiate with and pursue. Lord, help us to be a people who shower one another with words of reassuring love. We thank you for what you're doing in our lives. We pray, Lord, that we would model our lives and fuel our lives and be motivated by the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen.